Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Uh, There has never been a day like this day. And there will never be a day like this day. This is the day the Lord hath made. And we will rejoice and be glad in it. Luke, my brother, thank you so much for leading us, Emily, for gracing us with the violin. And we are so um, humbled that God has given to us yet one more day. I welcome every single one of you here. Um, a warm welcome on a crisp, cool, beautiful fall morning. Um, I, I am excited as I continue on in this series. Uh, I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. In chapter 1, we will move a few verses further down in our journey on what I refer to as Mark for a mission. Would you please uh, bow your heads and pray, pray with me this morning. God, we are amazed that you allow us this moment to be together with your word, we invite your spirit to come and to speak to us in a, um, with a necessary word. Father, we, we love you. We, we adore and are amazed at your patience with us, at, at the consistency of your mercies that are new every day. I pray, Lord, right now for every single soul that is, that is listening. Father, I would ask that you would quicken and awaken uh, their, their spirit to hear. Father, um, we live in a time and a day and an age that um, it is desperately important that we are familiar with you as our Savior. And surrendering to you as our Lord. Father, we love your word. And I just pray, Lord, that you would make it alive uh, to us. I pray, Lord, for our community. Many people this morning that literally are hung over. That that won't be in church this morning. But, Father, we, through your spirit, can go to them. And and offer them the only means of, of hope. And that is Jesus. Father, I would ask, Lord, that you bless our time together now. In your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> the, more, the more that you know someone, the more you will notice that someone. Let me say that again. The more that you know someone, the more that you will notice that someone. Listen very carefully as I read to you. Um, from Greg Gilbert's book. It's called Who is Jesus? It's a, it's a little story um, by way of an illustration this morning. Listen very carefully. It was, it was 10 minutes until 8 o'clock on a Friday morning when an ordinary-looking man rode up the escalator in a busy Washington, D.C. subway station. He positioned himself against a wall, and he opened his violin case. He pulled out his instrument, its age showing, the finish on its back worn down in some places all the way to the bare wood. And he turned the case around to receive any donations a passerby might want to give. And then he began to play. For the next 45 minutes, as the man played a selection 
of classical music, over a thousand busy Washingtonians hurried by. One or two cocked their heads, clearly enjoying the sound, but no crowd ever formed around him. One fellow realized he was running three minutes early for work, so he leaned up against a column and he listened for exactly three minutes. Mostly, though, people simply went about their business, reading their papers, listening to their iPods, hurrying away to whatever appointment was showing up next on their screens. Oh, the music was good. It filled up the arcade, dancing and flowing with incredible precision, and left a few people thinking later that at least for the split second they paid attention, it really did sound like something special. The musician himself didn't look like much. Black long sleeve t-shirt, black pants, a Washington Nationals baseball hat. But even so, if you stopped to listen, you couldn't help noticing that this was something more than just another musician playing the violin for pocket change. As a musician, this guy was pretty amazing. One man even commented later that most people, they play music, they don't feel it. Well, that man was feeling it. That man was moving, moving into the sound. If you just listened, he said, you could tell in one second that this guy was good. Well, of course you could, because it wasn't just any musician playing the violin that Friday morning in the subway station. It wasn't even a musician who was merely extraordinary. It was Joshua Bell a 39-year-old internationally acclaimed virtuoso who normally plays in the most celebrated venues in the world to crowds who respect him so much that they even stifle their coughs until intermission. Not only that, but that morning Bell was playing some of the most exquisite Baroque music ever written. And he was doing it on a 300-year-old Stradivarius violin worth an estimated $3.5 million. The whole scene was calculated to be beautiful. The most beautiful music ever written, played on one of the most finely calibrated instruments ever crafted by one of the most talented musicians alive. And yet for all that, you still had to stop and pay attention to see how beautiful it really was. I I use that, I share that as an illustration this morning to remind you, those whom you, what? Those whom you know best, you will notice all the more. Realize like that little illustration with the hustle and bustle, the busyness of our lives, the friends that you have, the family members and the appointments and the work and the fun and the play, that, that we miss out on the beauty that is around us, on the gifts that surround us. And so it is with Jesus. Who clearly is what? He is the most valuable gift, gift that has ever been given. And yet, for the most part... Many people do not see him. Most people do not know him. Therefore what? Therefore enter the church, you. 
We are called out ones. We are ones who are to be separated. We are redeemed. And we have a responsibility to introduce those people around us who don't know and don't notice Jesus. We are to offer them this gift. That, that's the way that we exalt the name of Jesus. You see, for it is Jesus who makes a way for us. He makes a way for us by being our salvation, offering himself to die, <clears throat> taking the place that we deserve so that we, by grace through faith, have the only hope, have the only hope for the rest of eternity. Not only does Jesus make a way for us, Jesus is. Realize that he is the way for us. That's what Luke quoted this morning. Jesus said, I am the way. The truth in life, no one comes in the Father but by me. Only through Jesus we can have a relationship with a holy and a heavenly Father. Amazingly, we have seen and we are learning that, that Jesus d- did not come to us in some like far off, uh, far away, distant, disconnected way. He came... We celebrate it once. We're already counting the days until Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. And as he came to us, he offers to us a model with how we are to do life, how we are to do every single minute of every single day. He teaches us and he shows us our mission. How, how do we love God? I mean, like hanging around that person, and yet God calls us to love that person. How do we do these things? Jesus gives to us that model. That is our mission. Now, if you remember the book of Mark last week, we kind of introduced this. And we need to remember the approach. The style of Mark is completely different from the rest of the other Gospels. There's not a lot of details here. Instead, it is full of quick, short events. It is always doing over descriptions. It is always a a summary statement over the sentimental, over the feeling. Mark's, Mark's concern is not a colorful commentary. Instead, it has, it has bullet points all the way through. Get to the big idea, the major events, and move on. Years ago, some of you remember watching or hearing or listening to Detective Joe Friday. Remember Dragnets? Kids have no idea who I'm talking about. Just the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. Okay, that's, that's really the, that's the approach that Mark has. Last week we introduced Mark and we introduced to you this, this colorful forerunner, the messenger, that has been perfectly planned and prophesied 650 years prior, the, uh, the prophet Isaiah. We know that Malachi adds, adds to that, that there's this, this one coming to introduce the Messiah. And this one coming was kind of a wild, you almost say weird, we used the term last week, freak. John the Baptist, very Elijah-esque in fashion, really didn't fit. But he didn't care that he didn't fit. He was dressed in camel's hair. I've never worn it, but I think it would be itchy. It says that he was eating a steady diet of bugs, locusts. I hate them. I'm afraid of them. He's eating them. And honey, which made me think, Dr. Gaunt, this is before the time of dentists and toothbrushes. A steady diet of honey would mean his probably 
teeth aren't looking that good either. He didn't fit in, but he didn't care he didn't fit in. Why? Because he had a job to do. He had a message to give. And it was a loud and a strong message that was necessary and truthful. It prophesied what? That he would be a voice crying in the wilderness, proclaiming, get ready. It's, it's not even a harsh message in its presentation by way of the individual. It's a harsh message in its content. Get ready, repent. Turn from the way that you're living your life right now. Turn from that. Why? Because there is one who is coming. There's only one. And he will baptize you with the Spirit. A unique ministry of unprecedented power and capability. John knows what? Mankind is in trouble. When you're in trouble, you want the best. When you're scared, you want the strongest. When you're losing, as some of you even now in all of life, you're like, I didn't plan for this. You want the only one. You want the only one who can allow you to win. Today we move a a little bit further down the the road of Jesus' life and his ministry and his mission. Mark chapter 1, verses 9, 10, and 11. Here it is. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, we say in Philadelphia, when he came up out of the water, Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. And a voice, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. God the Father says, I am well pleased. There's no greater words for a son to ever hear than to hear the words of his own father say, I am well pleased with you. Here we go, point number one, the son shows up. The son shows up. It says, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized. The baptism of Jesus. Understand this, you can mark this if you take notes. It is from this moment, this day onward, that the Son of Man would have no place to call his earthly home. He launches out from this scene forward. He doesn't go home at night. There is no home for him to go to. He was, from this moment, on the move. He was going to fulfill the mission that his Heavenly Father gave to him. Think about it. Think about what is happening here. After an eternity of glory in heaven. Jesus has always existed. After an eternity of glory in heaven. After what? Some 30 years of living in virtual obscurity on earth. No one knew who he was. He was a kid. He was what? From this moment, he was manifested. It means he was made known and he was introduced publicly for the entire world to see him and for the purpose knowing him let me remind you what when you know someone 
you will notice that someone. Now Mark always, through the the theme here of the entire gospel, shares an angle of Jesus' ministry that deals primarily with what? The emphasis of him serving, or, or the emphasis of Jesus Christ being a servant. He alone is the king of glory, and yet he never calls us to do something that he himself is not willing to do. That's a servant. Think about it. You and I today are instructed and we are commanded to be baptized. If you claim to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and you have not been baptized, you're actually living in disobedience. And yet Jesus, who calls us, what, to be baptized, he doesn't just just tell you to do something and not do it himself. Jesus in no way shows that he is above us, but rather he shows us that he is one of us. He came to us. By showing us that he's one of us, in doing that, he humbly submits to this idea of what? Of baptizo, to be immersed, to be dunked. Again, you you almost have to chuckle at Mark's approach. Listen to Mark's account. Listen to the facts. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. There's the details. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate that. The idea and one of the reasons that we're using Mark is that it's the platform to launch off into. Turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew and in chapter 3. And Matthew adds some necessary detail for us. Mark's gospel, he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. There's a little bit more detail here for us. Very important. Matthew chapter 3, 13, 14, and 15. Here it is. Then then Jesus, (coughs) excuse me, came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It is necessary or it is fitting for us in order to fulfill all righteousness. And then it says, then he consented. Now, you you have to look. The awkwardness of this scene is pretty obvious. John the Baptist, traveling, ministering throughout the Judean wilderness, what, he is rough, he's hairy, he is smelly, he is saying consistently, get ready, repent, there's one coming, and there's this one. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And now this one is standing before John the Baptist, and he is asking, and he is expecting. What? It, it doesn't really make sense. You know what I thought of here, and some of you may get this, some of you may, is I, I can't help but think of another richism. You know what richism is? Rich Buttville? He has these like statements that just come out of like nowhere. And I can almost hear him in like that Philly accent or Jersey accent or whatever it is. 
with this scene, um, Jesus asking John the Baptist to baptize him. I think of a richism that would say something like this. That would be like Hank Aaron asking me for a batting lesson. It, it, it just doesn't make any sense. Who would do that? This is the best. And that's basically what's happening. Now, I, I don't want to say that, that John argues with Jesus. But he, he certainly you've got he certainly questions Jesus here. I, I need to be baptized by you. And you you come to me, and Jesus reminds him of what you and I have got to be reminded of, even when it comes to the subject of baptism. What that there is something bigger here. There's there's something that happens behind the scenes. It's not just about you getting wet. It's about you identifying with. And that is exactly what is happening here. It is necessary. At what, what, what is it? It says it's necessary. It's fitting for us to fulfill all of righteousness. Now, there's more going on than John recognizes that more, more than John realizes. D.A. Carson, I think, great theologian, explains it quite well. He says this, and I quote, Jesus affirms, in effect, that it is God's will, all righteousness, that John baptize him. And both John and Jesus fulfill that will by going through with it. It is, it is fitting or it is proper for us. He fulfills all righteousness since he suffers and died to accomplish redemption in obedience to the will of God. Listen to this. By his baptism, Jesus affirms his determination to do his assigned work. Get get that? I'll, I'll repeat that. Carson says, by his baptism, Jesus affirms his determination to do the assigned work. Just do what you have been asked, instructed to do. Just do it. Just obey it. That, that's really a great reminder for you and I. The baptism of Jesus teaches us what? It's one of servanthood. The baptism of Jesus teaches us and models for us what obedience. Is that that not something that we still struggle with? Just obey. Every morning you get up, go to your words. Go, Go to His Word. Every morning get on your knees. Just do this. Obey this. Do what God has called you to do. He demonstrates us humility. John recognizes he truly is not worthy, but what both of them are important to fulfilling God's perfect plan. And so that's exactly what happened. Jesus came from Nazareth down to the River Jordan. It's about a 50-mile, about 80-kilometer trek, depending on where exactly. I was able to, had the privilege of visiting and making that journey from, from Nazareth down to the Jordan and amazing and beautiful, but, but it's really nothing impressive. And the instruction was that, that John baptized. Again, it word means not, not partially any more than you would bury a person partially. Do, do you do that? Bury half the body? No. You, you, do, you, do you just bury little? No. You bury them all. Same way that you're baptized completely. Number one, the, the sun shows up. Number two, the spirit shows off. 
I don't mean this in a disrespectful way in, in any, okay? But this is what he's doing. It says, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like or in the form of a dove. Now we have, we have glimpses of the power that exists in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Namely, at Pentecost, we see this in Acts chapter 2, with tongues, uh, a fire, uh, with people speaking. But, but remember, this is prior to this time in Acts chapter 2, and it is very overt. It says that the heavens were torn open. Now, what's interesting here is that although Mark is the type that's just the facts, just the facts, not a lot of detail, Mark is the only one of all the gospel that uses the word tore open. The, the other gospels just say, well, the heavens open. And I think that there's this, this personality of, of, of Mark, or perhaps Peter, who's narrating. The, 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 the comment that says what? It cannot be missed, and it is in complete fulfillment. Another messianic prophecy back in the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 64, it says in verse 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Isn't that quite specific? By way of a messianic prophecy, that you would rip apart the heavens and that you would come down. It says what? That a, a dove descends. Dove is and has been a picture of peace. Why is this? Because finally, as he emerges out of the water, the Prince of Peace has arrived. Please understand now that descent of the Holy Spirit meant that Jesus was anointed. At this moment, Jesus was commissioned for a unique service, a ministry like no one else ever. We'll see this confirmed in Luke in chapter 4 and verse 18. Jesus said himself, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. What a bold statement, and what a statement that you and I should pray for, should pray towards. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. The Spirit shows off. Thirdly, the Father speaks out. It says, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well there is no missing the main point, what I call the big light bulb, the big idea. The emphasis is on the unique sonship of Jesus. There is no one else like him. Mark, Mark makes this clear from the very, very beginning. Ernest Best says it best. And I quote, The gospel is not a mystery story in which the identity of the main character has to be guessed. From the outset, it is made clear who this is, the Son of God. And there are narratives where it's like, is, is, he, is he the good guy, or is he going to end up being the... There's, there's no guessing. From the very beginning, he is the Son of God. And the Father witnesses the approval of his Son. He knows that the mission that has been given is clear. At the very beginning of the mission... God stakes its confidence in him. It's kind of like you as a father sending your son out to do a job. 
And you know, as, even as they're little ones, I want you to run outside. I want you to get this for your mom. I want you to bring back. And as they're really little, you're kind of like, I have no idea what he's going to come back with. Like We really, we just don't know. It's, it's not like that. He knows exactly what he's been called to do. He knows exactly what he's been commissioned to do. And there is full confidence in him doing it. He is the right one at the right time. I've taught you, and hopefully you remember, okay, well, we hear this, so what? So we have a really neat story about Jesus getting wet, the heavens opening, a a dove descending, and God's, so what? Hey, first and foremost, (laughs) please our Heavenly Father. Who, who, Who is it that you seek to please? In your life, who is it that you really want to impress? And, and oftentimes there's a lot, well, I've got to keep my boss happy because if not, then it's really going to make my life miserable. And there's this long, I better keep my wife happy because if not, you know, if mom was happy, ain't nobody happy. And, and we have this idea that first and foremost, we are to, to please our Heavenly Father. And the essence of this whole so what, one cannot fail to be aware that in these couple verses that we read are three and central, absolutely critical aspects to the person, the ministry, and the mission of Jesus. We see the baptism of the Son. We see the anointing of the Son by the Holy Spirit. And we see the confirmation of the Son by the Heavenly Father. So why is this important Please understand me on this as clearly as any text in all of Scripture. Okay? Uh, as, as, as loud as any other passage, you will see and you will hear the revelation and the working of, and you know the word, the Trinity. Of, of any other text, you'll see this one. It rises to the surface. The Trinity is defined as what? The union of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in a single Godhead. It means what? That there is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons. I remember as a kid, my mom had it was a large hardcover, hardback book. It was green. It had a big red apple on it, and it was called Three in One. And I remember my first introduction to the Trinity in a lesson. That God is like an apple. There's the there's the peel, there's the flesh, and there's the core. Other books of the egg, and there's the shell, and the white, and the yolk. And we have these images that we're trying to, and it's hard. We can't fully understand. What we have to understand is what? Those that we know the best will notice. The doctrine of the Trinity is foundational to our Christian faith. The doctrine of the Trinity is foundational to our Christian faith. The doctrine of the Trinity is foundational to the Christian faith. It is crucial for properly understanding what God is like. It is crucial for understanding how how He relates to us and how we should relate to Him. Or stated differently, God is one in essence and He is three in person. And there's three definitions that express these critical truths about the Trinity. Number one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all distinct persons. 
They're, they're all distinct. Secondly, each person is fully God. And thirdly, there is only one God. Now try to wrap your mind around that. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all distinct persons. We don't have the time to read it. If you would write this down, I'd encourage you to look at it or look at it as a family. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 2, you see the Father as God. Grace and peace be to you, to our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father as God. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 13, we see Jesus as God. Titus chapter 2 and verse 13. In Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, we see the Holy Spirit as God. Hard to understand the fact that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons means, in other words, hold on to this, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Father. Jesus is God, but He's not the Father or the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God, but He's not the Son or the Father. Okay, we're like, whoa. They are different persons. They're not three different ways of looking at God. There are three different persons, not three different ways of looking at God. Hard to understand. Whereas each person is fully God. You automatically have to question, if, if God is three persons, does this mean that each part is, it comprises one-third of, of who God is? Does the Trinity divide God up into three parts? No. The Trinity does not divide God into three parts. The Bible is very clear that all three persons are 100% God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all fully God. Jesus Christ says what? It says of Christ, I should say, In Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Colossians in chapter 2 in verse 9. In Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And we see also that there's only one God. How in the world, if each person of the Trinity is distinct and yet fully God, should we then conclude that there is more than one? Obviously not. There's not a polytheism that exists here. Scripture is clear there's only one God. Isaiah chapter 45 and verses 21 says, There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And so we see these working perfectly, harmoniously together. So you get this? Number one, they're each a distinct person. Number two, they're each fully God. And number three, there's only one God. And we see this completely explained in this text. Here it is. The Son, okay, when He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open. The Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. The Father, speaking from heaven, You are my beloved Son. In Him I am well pleased. See it. And know it. Those whom you know, you very quickly recognize. The, the son shows up here. Know that he came. He served and he obeyed. He suffered. He bled. He died. He rose again. And guess what? He's coming again. Know that. 
Know that the Spirit shows off, that He is real. At this very moment, He is at work. He is powerful. He anoints and He commissions. And also know that the Father speaks out that He is always, always in control. And that He will always be exalted. You can push yourself to the front of the line all you want. It's not going to work like that. The name of Jesus and the person of God will be exalted. He confirms himself. I, I think it's interesting to note, and, and, and those of you that have been baptized, perhaps some of you that have been baptized recently, or those of you that, that need to be baptized, and I would love, let's make the plans for that. If you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, to identify publicly and be obedient. But notice it says what? In our, in our mandate, in our commissioning, of, of what we're supposed to be doing. It says that you are to baptize, preach the gospel, teach them to obey all things that I've commanded, and baptize them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. I don't baptize you in the name of Tim Bogan. That does nothing. There's nothing there. I don't baptize you in the name of the elders of Big Woods. That's nothing. But here we see it. And may we understand forever when we are obedient to the Lord we get a glimpse of who he is completely. Those whom you know the best, you will recognize the most. May we today, in this amazing day that God has given to us, there will never be another one like today, may we get a glimpse of who God is, the work, the ministry, and the mission of Jesus. Father, we love you. We thank you for how unique you are. I pray, Lord, that we, through your spirit, would continue to have your word speaking to us so that we learn and grow, that we exalt the name of Jesus by telling others of your greatness. We ask this in Jesus' name.